Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Charlie Peters. He's a GB News journalist and filmmaker. And his newest film is called Grooming Gangs, Britain's Shame, which will be released later this year. We talk today about the scale of the grooming gang scandal, the timeline of events, the people involved, the nitty gritty of it all. Charlie spent the last 18 months travelling up and down the country learning everything there is to know about this scandal and he's come to some conclusions about why it has been neglected in the way that it has. Be warned this is tough viewing, tough listening. This isn't nice um, but it is important and it has been shamefully neglected in the media to date and Charlie's doing his best to change that. So not an easy listen but I think a very necessary one. Tonight at 8pm, tune in to a GB News Investigates documentary as we tell the full story of the grooming gang scandal. My childhood has been stolen. We will expose the cover-ups that have kept this national scandal under wraps for decades. Not one person has been held accountable. Our investigation uncovers the true scale of this outrage. I want to see senior officials held legally to account. On GB News, grooming gangs, Britain's shame. Can you start from the very top? So for people who might be watching from overseas, for instance, who may be vaguely aware of what of, of what a grooming gang is, but won't know the won't know the chronology, won't know the details of what's gone on in the UK, might not know the political context. Even to be honest, people I think in this country who don't who don't really get what we mean when we say something like grooming gangs and don't get the political the political sure. salience of all of this. So um, I suppose the legalistic criminal term for what I'm investigating is group localised child sexual exploitation. That is a formal term for a grooming gang. Um, This is groups of men generally, um, sometimes but rarely supported by women, who deploy the so-called boyfriend model of exploitation on young women and girls. They typically uh, treat them as if they are their boyfriends and they lead them, these young girls, impressionable children into believing that they are in a relationship with their abuser. Um, and then they carry out kind of a mass of exploitation, trafficking, rape, abuse, torture. Um, this has been happening in the country at various forms, obviously forever, but has had a heightened level of, well, it's, it's been going on more severely really for the, for the last 40 to 50 years. The Telford report that was published last year catalogued about over a thousand victims from the 1980s onwards Um, and so it coincides really with a lot of change in Britain both in terms of liberalisation in terms of how far young people are allowed to go without observation through their family but it also tracks um, significant changes in the demography of the country and what we have noticed and I think what many have noticed independently kind of government investigators is that these group localized child sexual exploiters, these grooming gangs, typically are overrepresented by members of the British Pakistani community. And so we have this extraordinary situation where um, there are lots of um, victims of the 
Bangladeshi Liberation War living in Britain, which is a war that happened in the 1970s in, uh, in Bangladesh, um, where rape was used as a weapon on an industrial scale. And is this the wave of migration where you've got a lot of people coming to do um, industrial jobs in the North and, and the Midlands, is that right? Broadly, yes. And we also have a, a thing called chain migration, which is if you have, if you have one... Yeah relative you can bring more and so what you find is that if you have uh if you have a bad person living in britain who has a big family that family will join that bad person in britain and that will that community will steadily grow in some cases it will grow very rapidly as it did in in many of these post-industrial towns where these grooming gangs operated you will find that chain migration meant that often many of the abusers that we have seen in the country over the last 20 or 30 years operated in tandem with close family members, cousins, brothers, uncles, even father and son. Um, In one extraordinary case in Rochdale, we know of a man who was sentenced to jail, um, not for rape, actually, because they couldn't quite charge him for that, um, for reasons beyond my imagination. But they they did find an instance where he had offered a 15-year-old girl to his nephew as a birthday present for the purpose of kind of kind of blooding him into the family experience, right? Which is remarkably vile, but um, remarkably common as well. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the origin story um, of this issue isn't really well known, as you know, as you say, I mean, not only for people who aren't from Britain, but also in the country. Um, it is true that most abusers from grooming gangs are white, but this is a country that is over 80% white, right? So that's to be expected. I think in the, the, in the, the Home Office report in 2018 found that of abusers were white, 28% were Asian. Of those that are Asian, the majority are Pakistani. And it's worth saying that there are other types of sexual offending which where white men predominate, like, for instance, am I right that um, uh, online image sharing of child sexual abuse material is is mostly a white white man's game? Yes, and and, and the most paedophiles in Britain are white. There's no doubt about that. Most paedophiles in Britain are white men, and um, they often act as I think alone online, downloading or supporting the creation of indecent images to various categories. That's the bulk of the National Crime Agency's work in dealing with mm-hmm. paedophilia. It's online crime, and that is a ginormous, a ginormous effort. Um, but at the same time, um, crime that is often more physical, direct and organised and strategic and exploited directly in terms of immediate violence is under this kind of group group localised child sexual exploitation system, uh, which again is predominantly overrepresented by members of the British Pakistani community. So yeah, that's been the, that's been the, that's been the trend, the overarching trend since the 1980s. And um, this story first kind of came about in 2003 the Labour MP, Anne Cryer, reported, made reports about Asian men targeting girls outside school gates. And a journalist at the Times called Andrew Norfolk wrote it up, wrote it up, thought it was interesting. Um, but by his own admission, he didn't chase the story any further because he had a sense of liberal guilt, kind of a, a nervousness kicked in, a sense of liberal angst. And so he felt like the story was a, quote, far-right fantasy that a story about recently imported Asian men targeting white schoolgirls. It's, uh, it's the BMP's dream, right? It's the kind of the, it's the, kind of the, the hate-fueled story that mm-hmm. they would die for. Um, but unfortunately, it was 100% true. And seven years later, I think overcoming that angst, um, Andrew Norfolk, who 
I think everyone in this country should know about something of a, a journalistic hero who I think can can credit the saving of thousands of lives through his through his work began to research court records and discovered very quickly that there was a pattern of Asian men operating in this way, targeting through this boyfriend model of exploitation, offering young girls free food, free gifts, drugs, drink, offering them joy rides and taxis, meeting them usually in nighttime economy areas, and then attacking them and assaulting them, and making it so normalised that many of these girls, and often in the early noughties, before social media, before an ability to share their experiences indirectly um, or online or talk about what was going on and or have an understanding of what a normal relationship was, didn't realise they were being abused, mm-hmm. thought that what was happening to them was normal. In fact, would defend their rapists. He found, he found this pattern. He found it was widespread. And he began looking in particular into Rotherham, where we now know the worst child sex abuse scandal in modern British history of the Elizabethan era took place, where between 1997 and 2014, some 1,400 young girls were industrially raped, groomed, sexually assaulted, trafficked and tortured. That figure is in fact now actually been re-estimated up to 1,510 by the National Crime Agency after they conducted a further investigation called Operation Stovewood. But, um, and for context, how big is Rotherham? Rotherham is a town of 140,000. Um, okay. So obviously, that, because it's a near two-decade time, you can't draw much of an understanding, but in terms of the population change, or maybe someone who's better at statistics than me can do that. But that is a remarkable overrepresentation for... 1,400 girls to be abused in this way in that time. Sorry, 1,500, if we're using the more up-to-date figure. Um, People I've spoken to on the ground there in the last 18 months believe that the 1,500 number is still too low a figure. The sort of the most important whistleblower I've spoken to, and and really the woman who kind of blew the lid on this scandal, um, she's called Jane Senior. She is a fantastic campaigner, dedicated, unbelievable public servant who worked in Rotherham as a social, in social services for several decades, but the majority of her working life there. She was being ignored and denigrated by the local authorities and the police as she was raising these stories in council meetings, in community action partnerships. Uh, she ran a, a youth project called Risky Business, which was the, the council's group to help girls predominantly girls engaged in child sexual exploitation and she was the name itself is quite revealing it is it? yeah it has that kind of yeah. kind of soft blairite kind of joking energy but actually <laughs> yeah. it's dealing with something really horrific um it's, i mean do you think it's fair to say that this is what we would have called back in the day child prostitution so the the problem was that they were described as prostitutes um yeah, yeah absolutely the bbc ran an article in 2001 referring to a uh, an, up, an, up, uh, an overrepresentation of child prostitution in Rotherham. What we now know is obviously not that. Um, the Home Office sent a researcher to Rotherham in 2002 to study what was going on in the town, to look into child prostitution. And what she, what she found, in fact, was an abuse ring centred around one man um, called Arshid Hussain. And she found a network that came out of this man, Arshid, 
she found 270 victims in three years. Now, independent mm. investigators have since found, you know, over a thousand since. So, um, yeah, the, when Jane was being pushed back so much as she brought all these reports and case studies to counsellors, the police, social services, her frustration grew to the point where she was now determined to, quite frankly, put her life at risk and be a whistleblower and give this information to Andrew Northbrook, who then shared it on the Times on the front page in 2012. That blew the lid off the scandal. I remember. Yeah, it was a really, really big story. And it was an extraordinary story because the world woke up to what was going on, and yet there was still a denial within the institutions in, in Rotherham in particular, where Norfolk's reporting was described as, and this is a direct quote, lies of the Murdoch press by people who were in the council, by the senior leadership, mm -hmm. that's what they were described as. And over two years, I think as the pressure grew and Norfolk, the Times and other journalists from other papers obviously cottoned onto this story, they were under pressure to launch an independent report. That was the J report carried out by Alexis J, Professor Alexis J, a social worker, which then revealed the true extent at the time, what we knew from 97 to 2014. Um, and so she found this industrial scale disaster, this unbelievable, unbelievable crisis, which so many have assumed has been unique to just Rotherham or a few other post-industrial towns in the north. The purpose of my investigation is to demonstrate that actually this is a national scandal that has affected many, many different towns across the country. Rotherham is not unique. It hasn't got like an electric fence around it. This is a town where the worst of it happened, as far as I can tell. But unfortunately, it's not an exception in its real sense. It is part of a much bigger, much more scarring and devastating rule. Yeah, the, the thing that I find really striking from, from just looking at the time scale here, because you mentioned 1980s as a rough sort of starting point, and we know that this is still going on, um, even though the, the, the peak of interest in the media was um, a decade ago now or more, um, is just how difficult it clearly is for girls from that demographic to, to get the media's attention. Um, I mean, particularly in relation to this crime, but just, you know, it's really, really easy for upper middle class people to attract the attention of the media because we normally know someone, <laughs> right? We'll have one degree of separation or something from someone who works as a journalist. But the fact that you could have this going on for decades, right? And we're talking, as you say, industrial scale, incredibly wide ranging sexual abuse, torture and murder, right? I don't, I mean, I don't know if you can tell me or if we even know how many girls have been Murdered there, are gangs, there are several but... stories and, and the killings are gruesome. I mean, 40 stabbings, yeah. thrown in a canal, girls set, a, set on fire in the houses, girls with petrol poured on them, set ablaze, like the most terrific yeah. way that people can it be It is, killed. yeah, like grotesque, like worse than you can imagine. And yeah, so this was just going on and no one seemed to know or care in London. Um, so... The, the most revealing thing for me is that this has been going on for, as I've said, the best part of 40 years, and not one single victim is a household name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There has never been an effort to generate a sort of a personality to come from this shocking ordeal, to make sure it never happens again, to keep the memory alive of all the mm -hmm. girls who suffered in silence, many of whom still suffer in silence, thousands suffer in silence. And to to keep a to, to keep a flame, 
you know, the memory of those who died during it and several were murdered during this period. There has never been an effort to do that. Maybe I think that is revealing of how these girls were considered not really kind of white working class girls, but white underclass girls. And we have to remember that was the prevailing attitude, visceral attitude of the relevant institutions that were put out to protect them at the time. Operation Linden is the name of the Independent Office for Police Conduct's review into South Yorkshire Police that took place after the two reports into the council and the local problem. It found the institution was absolutely failing. It had failed these girls on a drastic level. Girls involved in this kind of abuse were described as engaging in a lifestyle choice. Um, Abusers were described, having an Asian boyfriend was a, a fashion accessory. There were instances where police officers caught men abusing girls in the back of taxis or in kebab shops and did nothing, just failed to intervene, just saw it happen, moved on. They thought it was normal. They thought these girls, you know, they just grow out of it. It was just a part of growing up. Um, one instance, a police officer told the father, and goodness me, I'm obviously we feel horrifically for the girls who've suffered, but we also have to extend enormous amounts of sympathy to the families as well. I mean, many of them knowing what's been going on for so long, but powerless to intervene. One father was told by a, a policeman from South Yorkshire that he hoped it would teach his daughter a lesson, what was happening to her. She was being gang raped, and he, he hoped it would teach her a lesson, as though she deserved this. So the girls, what they, they, most of them thought what was happening to them was normal. They knew, no, they knew nothing else. When they did snap and say, I can't take this any longer, I need to speak to someone, I need to get to the police, this is clearly wrong, something is not right here. The police laughed at their faces, or in, in, in many cases, I believe, actively supported those who were raping them. I spoke earlier in, in this podcast about uh, the Home Office researcher who came up to Rotherham in 2002 to 2005. Her, method, her methodology of engaging in this issue was so intense and so on the ground that she actually came to know many of the girls who were being referred to risky business. One girl, and like all good social workers and researchers, she gained the trust of the girls that she was working with and supporting. One of them said, I can't take this anymore. I've got to report to the police. The researcher took her to the police station. And while she was at the police station, she received a message from her abuser on her phone saying, I know that you're there. I have your 11-year-old sister. The gangs had actually already broken her brother's legs. So terrified she dropped her complaint left the police station said nothing after months of work she'd finally brought up the courage the unbelievable courage to bring this to the police and while there's no evidence to know to know exactly what happened it's almost certain right that somebody in the police station informed her abuser who he obviously knew about at the time and there are so many there are so many instances where we know this kind of collusion happened one of the uh, reports into the council uh, Dame Louise Casey wrote a review of Rotherham Council, which was published in 2015. She detailed an experience whereby the deputy leader of the council, Jahangir Akhtar, in 2000, when he was still just a taxi driver before he joined the Labour Council and became the deputy leader, he had facilitated the handover between an abused girl and the police via the girl's rapist so that she would be passed back to the police to be returned to her family, having been kidnapped, and the abuser would be let off scot-free. 
And this happened. We know that this happened and that this man went on to become a Labour councillor. He actually became chair of the police and crime panel, which oversaw South Yorkshire police. And he had once orchestrated and facilitated a deal between an abuser and the police, which allowed him to escape punishment for child rape and abduction. Uh, that man, uh, who's you know, Mr. Akhtar, as far as I can tell, he's never really faced any major retribution for this. Uh, it speaks, I think, to the almost pathetic level of forgiveness that we have in Britain for people who are involved in this kind of shocking behaviour and that he was just allowed to resign from the council and move on with his life. In fact, actually, his daughter, a few years after he was forced to resign, um, was given a job at a council-funded charity which gave her access to details about grooming gang victims. And that's just been allowed. That's just happened. When I reached out to that charity, they didn't speak to me. But you know, if this was a scandal involving, say, white working class girls or sorry, if this was a scandal involving, say, you know, middle class white girls or girls from an ethnic minority majority background here, then you can guarantee, I think, with 100 percent certainty that the level of media establishment and government attention on this would be relentless. Everyone who had ever been even slightly involved in this would be vilified for life. Um, and I really do think, to bring it back to the original point, that we don't know the name of a single survivor, often due to their own safety. I mean, some of these girls are now in their 30s, right? And their abusers, if they have been to jail, most of them haven't. Most of the abusers involved in this period haven't been prosecuted, haven't been convicted. But if they have, they've been out of jail within four years, sometimes three, on license for a bit. And then they just see them again in their small post-industrial towns or in a small town in the south of England, in like Oxfordshire and Banbury, for example, or Telford or Glasgow, Bristol, Newcastle, London. Yeah, there are, there are up to 50 different towns and cities where we know this is going on, where this has happened credibly over the last two decades. And there is no, I think, there is no serious evidence to reaffirm that this has been dealt with on a serious level at all. It's always been battered away. What do you think of the common themes between the places in which it's happened? So a, a particular concentration, I suppose, of men from British Pakistani community working in nighttime economy jobs. Are there other factors? Like the thing I'm thinking of in particular is labour lab councils more likely to... Yeah, but I think Labour councils also correlate more generally with majority of British Pakistani areas. So I think yeah. the, over, the overarching... And with theme, poorer areas as well, which areas, means true. more so victims. Yeah, more yeah. victims, more victims, more perpetrators. That, that generally seems yeah. to align. Um, unfortunately, that generally seems to be the correlation for group localised child sexual exploitation in England. Um, it's not always British Pakistanis, of course, that are the most overrepresented in every town. But but there are Iraqi Kurds who have been involved in this, Kosovans. Uh, in Banbury, I think they were African Muslims. I don't know the ethnicity or country of origin. I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, abusers are diverse, but they generally seem to coalesce around the British Pakistani identity in particular. Mm. Um, that, is the, that is the rank truth of it. And I think some people have tried to... I mean, Loads of people have tried to diminish the ethnicity aspect as much as possible. One of the main ways that we've seen this happen is through the umbrella, the use of the umbrella term Asian, right? Um, as I said, oh, Asian men are targeting white girls, right? Um, 
which is a huge disservice to the majority of Asians in Britain because that is an extremely diverse category. It's also the most popular non-white ethnicity in Britain, right? So mm-hmm. um, that encapsulates everything from Southeast Asians to uh, South Asians. Um, you know, it's, it's a, everyone who's Middle Eastern would capture in that as well. It's a ginormous portion of our kind of, of like heritage in Britain. And it allows people to deflect the truth away from, you know, the reality here, which is which is way more precise than Asians in general. Um, mm-hmm. And there are many people who are, say, Sikh or like, or like uh, British Hindus who look at this and get very upset to think that they're being captured into the same kind of uh, degradation in the, in the same conversation. They're being included for no reason. And, um that has allowed people to get away with truly discussing what's going on here. Um, mm-hmm. the, we spoke earlier about the kind of chain migration and, and the links here. I think clannish attitudes among British Pakistanis can, can explain a lot of the reason why they're overrepresented. So there is that family appreciation, family links that have allowed many abusers to commit this crime, be prosecuted, and then just return to their community without punishment. And that obviously that comes through mm. a, a system of male power as well, where, where, mm-hmm. where wives are silenced. Some journalists have done great work on talking about how the women involved in this story from the Pakistani communities, what is it like to be the wife of a grooming gang perpetrator? What is it like to be the sister or daughter of one of these men? Indeed, lots of Pakistani girls were actually targeted by these same men, but had an additional reason for keeping silent, which is that if they spoke, their marriage prospects were just destroyed immediately. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a clannish ethnicity, if you come from a clannish community, your marriage prospects are extremely important and they have to be linked by those you know, often from the same town, often from similar families. Of course, in Britain, we know that cousin marriage among British Pakistanis is incredibly popular. It's incredibly common um, in many of the towns where some of the most horrific abuse took place. We find that cousin, cousin marriage is very common. Bradford, for example, is the, I think, the most obvious example there. So this clannish, these clannish attitudes generate a sense of, I think, kind of community cohesion in the most gruesome way in this mm. case. I mean, in a funny sort of way, I mean, it's something that I write about a lot, family values, <laughs> right? In some ways, what we're talking about here is 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 an ethnic group that really values family and has extremely strong extended families and uh, community cohesion and people living close to one another. I mean, obviously having migrated, but, you know, within the UK, living close to one another, which is like a good thing, right, often, and actually has all sorts of benefits to it. But it does also beget the sort of um, corruption and um, the kind of cover-up that we've seen. And which, right. you know, you'll be familiar, I don't know, anyone who's watched Godfather films or something will be familiar with that kind of culture. It's not unique to any particular part of Pakistan, but it's very pronounced. And it's come up against a white underclass or maybe working-class culture, which is the opposite, which is very fragment- fragmented. You've got a lot of girls in care, who are being victims, right? Am I right there? And you've got a lot of families who actually aren't really keeping close tabs on where their daughters are and and aren't necessarily... I don't want to stereotype about the families because obviously they've gone through hell. 
but there hasn't always been the attentive parenting that you might hope for. And when you have those two cultures coming up against each other, it's sort of a tinderbox for exactly this kind of offending. Yeah. T taking the first point, the idea that, you know, it begets corruption. That is definitely true. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is especially true in this story as well. Uh, one of the stories that I broke earlier this year on GB News was about a man who was forced to resign from Rotherham Council in 2015 after the Casey report was released. It's called Maru Hussain. Uh, he was on the council um, from the early noughties. He was the community cohesion minister, of course, uh, during this period. And the Casey report named Jahangir Akhtar, who I mentioned earlier, the man involved in the, the trade, uh, the, the kind of gruesome trade. And it also named Maru Hussain, as Casey discussed how Pakistani councillors wielded un, unreal levels of influence over the council as it deals with all sorts of issues, but this issue in particular. And that when concerned citizens or police officers or social workers raised concerns about what was going on, the Pakistani councillors were able to say, you're racist or you're going too far with this. What are you talking about? What evidence do you have? And they bat it away. And so they were, in many ways, representatives for a community which was overrepresented in this abuse and allowed them to give a sort of political cover for that abuse, gave them political protection. We found that Maharuf Hussain now works as a national equality and diversity manager in the NHS. Okay, So he went from being implicated in the rejection of uh, stories of abuse, being implicated in covering up and pushing away what was going on and to then be in charge of diversity for a public body within no time within within five years he was in this role but we know also from a report last year in Telford where over a thousand girls as a conservative estimate were abused from the 1980s until um, 2020 they also raised that there was a racial nervousness there in the uh, council response I have found the same in Rochdale as well, where local reports and whistleblowers have spoken about race being an issue. We know, for example, that um, a police constable in, in Rochdale, in the Greater Manchester Police Division there, compiled an extraordinary intelligence document naming over 100 paedophiles on a database who were suspected of being involved in GLCSE in Rochdale, which is uh, kind of a town northwest of Manchester in Greater Manchester. Um, there was a meeting on 6-7-2005 to discuss what they were going to do with this database. The next day, the worst terror attack in modern British history took place, where Islamists let off several bombs on the transport system in London. The, the minutes from that meeting have been lost. We don't know what they discussed. And there is an assumption, I think, which is, can be made with reasonable confidence that exposing the truth about majority Pakistani gangs operating and abusing children in Rochdale was considered far too incendiary to be released the day after the worst Islamist attack at the time that had kind of ripped through the hearts and the consciousness of the nation in the most explosive terms. Mm -hmm. And so it was dropped. It just wasn't discussed. We now know from testimony and from reports and brave whistleblowers in Rochdale 
about what has happened since 2005 and indeed before, about what was ignored, about who was allowed to escape free. In one horrifying example, there's a small suburb of Rochdale that I visited last year called Fallinge. It was a nice high school there, quite beautiful views towards the moors. It's quaint, post-industrial English, two up, two down, gentle energy. It's a, it's a rather sweet place. For years, a child prostitution rape den was operated in Fallinge, where there was a list on a door and men could bring girls there, write their name down on the door on this little note and tick off the number of times they visited in a month with a girl they were going to abuse. A girl they would often pass around in groups, for example, several girls. At the end of the month, the man who ran the house would collect payment for how many times they ticked off. It's like a paedophile honesty box, right? And this had been going on in this town for years. One of several horrifying stories from, from the area. It's a sign of a high-trust society, is what it is, bizarrely, right? The fact that that level of trust within 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 the, the gang um, and also the lack of fear of any kind of... Of of discovery, literally, you know, writing this down is a, is amazing, and is in also in very stark contrast to the ambient culture around them, which it, again just brings me back to this kind of culture clash framing for what we've seen, and which no one wants to talk about <laughs> in general. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and Masculine Feminine Polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So find your Keeper at Keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. Because this, because this whole scandal is happening at the exact same time that you've got the the dominance of sex positive feminism. Right, right. right. I mean, right. It's, it, it it could not track more perfectly. And yeah. um, the the idea that we are at once kind of punishing people for acting in a wild way, but also praising them for it at the same time, but only judging, mm. only judging poor white girls for doing it, and it it it, it has more of a classist overtone than it does, I think. Yeah. It's, it's an intersectional issue, Charlie. There we go. Hey. <laughs> it's like it's actually a good use of that term no, in the sense it. that, yeah, it's it's there. It's it's race plus class plus sex plus age plus all of this is it makes the perfect victim, so to speak. Um, 
and allows it all to just go on for so long without anyone intervening. Can I try and steal man what the sure. other side would say to this? Given that they're not here, right? So the and and I'm also saying this as someone who um, used to work in a rape crisis centre in a city affected by grooming gangs, and uh, didn't work directly with that because they were separate services. But I, I I've heard this particular account from a lot of different people, including from within those services, which is that. There's a lot of child sexual abuse goes on. A very high proportion of children will be sexually abused at some point before they become adults, um, girls and boys. And uh, this, like, yes, it's horrific, but this accounts for a very small portion, really, of all child sexual abuse. And it has been hijacked from early on by the likes of Tommy Robinson and other far-right groups who have used it, who don't generally care about victims of child sexual abuse or women in general, but have used this as a lever to increase race tensions in this country and that anyone in the media who who kind of signal boosts that is perhaps inadvertently just playing into their hands. I dispute the idea that far-right extremists have hijacked this story. It's not that they've hijacked it, it's just that they have been the only people speaking about it in any depth. I think a lot of their analysis is wrong. And clearly, um, the extents to which they go to achieve some of their ends are unsuccessful and, and badly organised. There has been this story this year, for example, about a girl who cried wolf, right, in Barrow, claimed that she had been groomed and, and hadn't, in fact, and was faking it the whole time. Um, a sufficient level of care with that story would have meant that nobody else would would have run with it but unfortunately lots of people did because the only people really looking into that story and giving it the airtime that it deserves in general were those on the extreme right who wanted to just kind of you know stoke fires wherever they found them however um you will not cede this story to the far right <laughs> if you actually speak about it yourself right and people just haven't people have ignored it Literally every single major social problem that conservatives or the right bang on about is involved in this story. It's all there. And so for obvious, re obvious reasons, those on the left liberal side who have significant amounts of uh, influence in the media and law would rather not have this story discussed. They would rather it, it goes away because it really cuts to the heart of so many national problems quite severely that many of these places were... Made many of these towns, for example, where this abuse took place, were made very poor and then very diverse very quickly. Um, this, in part, is in part a cause of the struggle and suffering and abuse that happened. Um, mm. But this is not considered a useful way of looking mm. at the problem, even though it's demonstrably the case. And we can, of course, point to the fact that. As you said at the beginning of your steel man defense, you know, this makes up a supposedly small proportion of child abuse and that there's a lot of online abuse. Yeah, but it's still a proportion, right? It's still it's still a part of the story. It's still, I would say, clearly a, a, an under discussed, under investigated major part of the problem. And as I, as I said earlier on in, in this recording, you know, I, we've looked into myself and my team, my team of two have looked into been looking into this story for 18 months and researching the number of credible allegations of records of abuse that there are around the country. It's up to 50 different towns and cities. There has been an independent review into Rotherham, 
there has been an independent review into Telford. That's it. Um, we had the the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse published last year, 400 pages long. It mentions Rotherham once. Um, I think that's clearly insufficient. What I want is for us to treat that portion with a seriousness that we never have, to restart the national conversation that we skipped entirely when Andrew Norfolk, The Times and other journalists shed light on the story a decade ago, a decade of silence, really. What I want is for independent reports and reviews and investigations to finally take place in the places that are desperate for them. What has been like the most depressing part of this in so many places has been speaking to survivors or activists from all sorts of parts of the country, and particularly Oldham, Oldham and, and parts of kind of West Yorkshire. Obviously, Oldham's not in West Yorkshire, it's in Greater Manchester, but those are the two separate places where I've met people who are saying, for goodness sake, I'm seeing this happening still. I'm also seeing that the people who've ignored it for ages are in charge of my local authority, in their view, for example. Um, I'm crying out for someone to shed some light on this. Will you help me? Nobody else will. That's just it's miserable to think that there are credible allegations of this kind of abuse taking place. And because we did Rotherham, we can just kind of move on with the rest. And Rotherham can be held up as the sort of the standard of we tried. Wasn't this very bad? We've got lessons to learn, but whether or not we'll learn them is really up to be discovered. So much more to be done around the country. And in the only place where this has really happened to any great effect over a period of time, Rotherham, yes, Ofsted now says that the child services have improved. But last year we found out that South Yorkshire police are still failing to record ethnicity. Um, people I've spoken to there fear that this is still an issue. Uh, the Labour Party nominated Dominic Beck, who had to resign from the council in 2015 after the Casey report as their parliamentary candidate for the next general election. He quit after GB News ran a story about it. There are so many. And, oh, and also Rotherham's been selected as the 2025 children's capital of culture, extraordinarily, oh, while, yeah. while, you while can't people make it up, are can still you? committing this abuse in the town and while there has yeah. not been a sufficient level of retribution for those involved in the earlier sufferings. And when the town is synonymous with this style of abuse, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to know actually, why do you think it is that Rotherham, you can, you can use Rotherham as a, as a shorthand for this? Well, uh, clearly, it's, it was, clearly so far, as, as far as we know, it was worse there than anywhere else, as far as we know. I mean, the, as the Prime Minister, uh, Rishi Sunak did promise that he, would, that he would act in a strong manner on this. So, you know, we're waiting, hopefully, to see action on that front, whether that be an inquiry or whatever. Um, I mean, my response to, the, uh, to, to those who say that this is, this is given too much airtime is, is not only that we actually just don't know nearly enough about this to know what percentage of child sexual abuse it constitutes because there just hasn't been sufficient sufficient investigation done. Um, and, of course, the reasons for that lack of investigation are sort of particularly troubling reasons. It's not just um, lack of resources or, um, you know, difficulty of getting victims to um, uh, to work with police in, in investigations. You know, th those obviously are... Those are, in general, the most significant barriers to... Um, rape prosecution which is obviously very low we're talking like less than one percent of rapists will end up in prison as a consequence of their crimes and so on so it's not as if um lack of prosecution is rare in this type of offending but what is rare 
and is very marked in this case, is the degree of corruption and collusion and deliberate attempts not to look further. You don't tend to see that in sexual offending, and you do see that a lot in this case. Um, I think also just the grotesque levels of violence. I mean, the the you're, in feminism, you're not supposed to say that there are kind of worse or better types of sexual violence and clearly that it's idiosyncratic and and people will have completely different responses depending on the relationship with the offender you know it's all true but come on like there's a there's a there's a young woman in your documentary who at least one woman who says that she cannot remember how many men have raped her and how many times she's been raped because it's just she was effectively imprisoned in a flat and was just prostituted out of that flat for weeks months and she basically cannot recall you know that that is a level of of sexual violence that isn't, you know, when we talk about like X percent of kids having experienced sexual abuse, we're not talking about that. And we're not talking about murders and we're not talking about tortures and we're not talking about kids being branded with the initials of their rapists. That's something that's come up at least once in these accounts. You know, I, I think that the, I think it is appropriate for the public to be particularly distressed by this type of crime um, and for it to get disproportionate attention and it hasn't except to the extent that you know there's been discussion about the sort of politics of it and the fact that you know the various responses to the lack of response has been what we've spoken about but there hasn't been nearly as much discussion of the crimes themselves and the fact that they're probably still going and and the reason i think the overarching reason why as far as i can tell from my analysis that there hasn't been this overarching level of attention not just in the media really but at the government level when Sajid Javid re- released under pressure of 120,000 people signing a petition, the review into grooming gangs that the Home Office published in 2018, actually it was authored by people who were ideological enemies of the Conservative Party, who were ideological enemies of those who were concerned about grooming gangs. Indeed, one of the authors has continued a career of saying that the overrepresentation of Muslims or Pakistanis in this conversation is a sort of like it's a racial violence is the reason why we talk about it and tries to demonstrate as I said earlier you know 30% of abusers of GLC GLCSE are white and 28% are Asian therefore whites are overrepresented are whites are more popular in this crime and people will whenever you talk about say some concerned parent from I don't know, South Yorkshire, there's a tweet about this saying, well, you know, look how bad this problem is in my town. Invariably, some nutter with a Simpsons emoji or like some junior former Guardian reporter will reply with the link to government study finds that, you know, mm-hmm. Muslim... It's one of the top hits if you Google it. Oh, it's a myth. Oh, actually, it's not true. You know, yeah. well, that's just like the most appalling and embarrassing thing. And, and a conservative-run home office allowed this to be released is like shocking. So naturally, we look into that report in our in our in our investigation in our documentary um others have kind of analyzed it in the past but uh what others haven't done is actually try to take a better look at the ethnicity issue in in more fine detail um which i won't speak about now people have to watch the film to know about how bad that is and it really is horrifyingly bad um why nobody in the government has ever had the minerals to show this statistical difference and to put it in clear terms is, I think, appalling. You know, the Royal Statistical Society does this coin flip test, right, that 
the majority of MPs don't know the odds on flipping a coin on it landing on heads twice. So that might be to blame for a small portion of that difference, but clearly uh, a failure to grasp statistics is like less than maybe 2% of the reason why they're not doing this. The reason why is because the truth is too painful to bear. The reality is so horrifying that it like slays a thousand different sacred cows. And so it just has to be ignored. We have to pretend it hasn't happened. There are a few exceptions to that. So Sarah, Champ- Sarah Champion springs to mind, someone who has spoken about this. And um, um, remind me, she she didn't get a good reception. That's right, I remember. Well, yeah, she wrote, she wrote a piece in The Sun, I think in 2018, saying, mm-hmm. so four years after the Jade Report was released, so four years after we knew at that time the extent of the problem. We know even more now, obviously. And she wrote in The Sun saying, you know, Pakistani abusers are clearly overrepresented. And the Labour Party at the time, Corbyn-led, kind of just destroyed her. Um, people in the council called it, a, you know, like a racist attack and all the rest of it. So um, serving and, and former Rotherham kind of local apparatchiks kind of lined up to, to denigrate her and attack her. But I think it's sort of like, I don't know why Sarah Champion wrote that piece because but there is, I, I don't know, I think there's some sort of bizarre labor focused feeling to kind of have a selective memory about this because any, anyone who's involved in that town in any way i am suspicious of and i feel nervous about in december when uh, dominic beck was announced as the labor candidate for rother valley sarah was like oh fantastic dominic beck he's gonna be great someone replied some anonymous guy 20 followers and absolutely like no like, nobody on twitter just said was he not did he not resign after the the CSE scandal, did he not resign after the Casey report exposed the culture of widespread denial in the council where they refused to accept the findings of the J report? Sarah Champion replied in a tweet, which is no longer there, uh, in, in, in response, saying, um, oh, no, I don't think he was a councillor at the time. The front page of the Times newspaper resigned. The front page said, finally, the truth after the lies. Why did Sarah Champion forget that? Did she really forget it? You know, I'm not so sure. So... Um, there is undoubtedly a culture of like severe bullying that takes place in Labour over this issue. Women who speak out are like hectored and pilloried, and and it's mostly women who speak out uh, and are treated with like the most egregious disdain. And I think for some people, perhaps that bullying can in time be effective, and you might in time find that it's probably not worth it. Um, I'm not saying that's what has happened to Sarah, but I think it definitely has happened to a lot of people. I am sure that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the Labour Party who knew about this over time and never wanted to speak out because they knew that their political careers would be poleaxed by those closest to them immediately and that they would be seen as sort of like traitors to the movement. And of course, for a lot of people, the Labour Party is their entire life. So... If they lose that, they they lose everything. I mean, if you want to talk about clannish attitudes among British Pakistanis, probably the the most powerful clan among white culture in England is the Labour Party. It's the most family-run institution that you have uh, for a lot of people. Your football club and then the Labour Party, right? That's it. Um, So why why lose your family over a story which you know isn't going to go anywhere and which also goes against everything you've been taught as a leftist throughout your entire career? I can see why it happens. It's the short answer, basically. I can see why people 
have been warped up by this conspiracy of science and have been bullied into saying and doing nothing for so long. What's been your experience of uh, of working on this story in terms of the reception that you get? Because I've, I've written about it a little bit and um, I'll be honest, I get a little bit nervous before I do and I do it anyway <laughs> because I think that not to do so would be cowardly and despicable. Um, but it's one of the most controversial things you can write about, I'd say, in UK politics. And, uh, I mean, for those who don't know from overseas, GB News is a, is a, is a right-leaning news channel. I wouldn't say that. No, we're, we're a free speech. We're a free speech broadcaster. Okay. It, might be the, it might be the case that in order to generate um, more balance on the news, there are more right-leaning commentators. And it might be the case that lots of people on the left have written off GB News as an acceptable source uh, because they don't want to be associated with it. But it's absolutely not. I, would, I reject that it's a right-leaning broadcaster. It's a free speech channel, which has voices from all sides. Okay. <laughs> Do you feel any sense of nervousness in working on this? It's very, very difficult, and it should be difficult, to feel brave about talking about this when I compare that to the scale of the bravery of those I'm speaking to. Right? Every single day, whatever courage I feel that I might need to do this job, I, I find that being squashed entirely by just the nature of the testimony that I receive from the whistleblowers, activists and survivors that I speak to every day. Um, retelling and analysing, processing and disseminating their stories is just a basic public journalistic service, right? Um, yeah, I might, I might get pilloried for it when it comes out, uh, but... You know, I've, I've dotted the I's and crossed the T's. There's nothing they're going to kill me for because what I've said is true. Um, but also, I mean, you know me, I'm not going to shy away from that kind of stuff. Um, I can pick a number, get in line and take their turn as far as I'm concerned because the facts are the facts. And I'm willing to defend this story on its terms because the terms are devastating for those who might want to attack me for it. How much organising has there been in terms of the victims? Are there? I'm not aware, you know, and I know quite a lot about this topic, and I'm not aware of there being sort of specific campaigning groups or, or groups that represent the victims. Has there been efforts at organising that haven't? The, the one foundation group I've encountered that does the most on this is probably the Maggie Oliver Foundation. Yeah, I mean that's the one I know of as well. Maggie Oliver is the the whistleblower from Greater Manchester from Rochdale, who's in the film. She set up a foundation to lend support to victims of GLCSE around the country. So she's turned her regional Mancunian experience into a kind of a national effort to support those who suffer from it. Um, but I think it's interesting that the only foundation that really works on this all the time is led not by a survivor, but by a whistleblower. It's probably harder to be a survivor and working on this space full time because A, you have to be public. There are so few of them who are for fears of their own safety. And it's impossible to organise if you exist in the shadows. You know, the only people who organise in shadows are spies. And they're, you know, these women aren't spies. They're people who've endured unbelievable levels of suffering. Um, many of the people I've spoken to, I took a long time to, to get them to speak on camera or want to give me their story because, as you can imagine, reliving that story is unbearable and they relive it mentally every day of course the scars are relentless but the idea of seeing it portrayed 
is like unbearable for a lot of them. So for many people I've spoken to, they've said, you know, thank you for what you're doing. And here's what happened to me, but it's all on background. You can't, I can't see the shared. It makes me, you know, I live with complex PTSD, anxiety, depression. They, they don't want to do it again, but, but they also want to let me know what's happened. So that's been, I think, indicative not only of their struggle, but also of the reason why it's not really reached the level of public perception and, and organising that it, it might need. Um, perhaps there is space for a sort of a victim's commission within a survivor's commission within the GLCSD story in Britain, whereby we can guarantee the safety and security of a few of these women who've endured this, possibly by deporting or forever jailing those who abuse them, something we've yet to really achieve on any great scale. We've deported maybe a few, just a few, you know, possibly tens of thousands of victims. Do and, we know, you know how many have been imprisoned, roughly? Um, so I think there have been, I have to check, but I think in Rotherham there were as low three figures in terms of prosecutions. No, and we're not even... necessarily talking especially long sentences. No, no, no. So, so in Rochdale, so in Rochdale, we don't know the number of victims, but um, you know, whistleblowers and local activists have compiled hundreds of paedophiles through databases over the years. So it, it's likely that the number of victims is you know at least high three figures, possibly into the thousands. Um, and we know that the number of rapists in the town involved in this crime is also extremely high to correspond with that figure and also with the research done by those on the ground at the time. I think there have been nine convictions in Rochdale for this. There was one big trial and there might have been further since. There have been two deportations. They actually only were deported in November. Um, they called Quarry Ralph and Adil Khan. They objected to having an all-white jury at their trial, uh, playing very directly into the, the racial elements of their abuse and also of their their eventual punishment. They were seen as kind of operating on a separate strata of society. They chose white girls to victimise and then objected to punishment from white people after it happened, as, as that was some sort of, I don't know, they'd be racially biased and, prof and like dealing with these horrific rapists. I don't know what goes through their minds. Maybe it was a desperate defence. Um, in Newcastle, Newcastle, you know, I think is probably the most successful operation in dealing with this problem. As far as I can tell, um, Operation Sentinel, Northumbria Police's effort there, it's like I would I would consider it based on my research in, in these 50 different towns as the gold standard. There wasn't an enormous amount of racial nervousness or kind of or bias or political correctness. They just smashed these gangs. They just got rid of them quite effectively um, through a very good intelligence network and sent a lot of them down in 2017, dozens. So... Yeah, that's a possibly a, a guide for others. But when it comes to the rest of the country, we just don't know. We just don't know. But I am, I imagine the gap between kind of abuse and prosecution is as dreadful as it is for other similar sexual assaults and abuses. People listening who are or watching who are um, angry about this, whether in the UK or elsewhere, but particularly in the UK, what would you recommend they do? Like, is there anything that members of the public can do to um, provoke investigation at this point? Um, well, I would, of course, recommend watching and sharing the GB News Investigates documentary on the grooming gang crisis. Um, because I think, obviously, it's my own piece of work and I'm allergic to self-praise, which I think is 
criminal. But I think it is a genuinely important piece of work insofar as it compiles stories that have been forgotten, gives voice to those who have been largely voiceless, and also completes a unique and careful analysis of the national picture. Um, a lot of what I'm talking about has already been talked about in part elsewhere, but nobody's done the overarching analysis of the truth behind the perpetrators, the truth about those who've been caught up in this. And so I think the way this story has been handled before has meant that when people have angry shared or passionately you know, have a, a campaigning zeal when they share this information, there has always been a way to dip away from it. You mentioned the 2018 Home Office report, how it's the most thing, the most kind of common search result when you try and discuss this issue. Well, I think if enough people share this documentary, this should be the most popular result when you search for this story. This should be the telling of the story and the analysis. That means that really we can no longer ignore this in the way that we have in the past. Obviously, there is a frustration that I'm making this. I'm frustrated that I'm doing this. I think that I should be doing investigative work that requires me to go far below the surface level truth that I'm dealing with. I'm just restating, or I'm not restating, I am stating a truth that has been ignored. Um, I wish that this had happened a decade ago, earlier, much earlier. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a form of this discussion that just hasn't existed. Uh, I hope that it not only starts a national conversation, but it, it resets the parameters by which people feel it's acceptable to talk about this problem. I hope it gives you know, a fresh argument to those who rightly believe that it matters and are laughed at, literally laughed at when they talk about it, who are mocked and pilloried by leftists for being, uh, you know, BNP supporting nutters when they say, by the way, this is the biggest race hate crime and sexual scandal, sex crime scandal of our lifetimes, that they are finally treated with the intellectual rigour that they deserve and not the denigration and hate that is flown their way as it stands. And I also hope that it, it kind of forces members of the government and members of the kind of managerial slash media class who are involved in setting the agenda to to give this story a human face because so many of the accounts that we have are through an actor, through some anonymous copy on page eight of a regional newspaper, through stories from a friend of a friend. I mean, many of the stories I heard were just meeting people in like Telford, Rochdale, Oldham, Rotherham, Sheffield, just meeting people on the street and being like, I'm doing this story, what do you think? Like, oh yeah, I know, well, my neighbour's sister actually was involved in this, you know. I hope that this film helps to give those people, those people who set the agenda, faces that they can no longer avoid, right? That when they think about this story and when when they kind of consider what needs to be addressed, that those voices told in their own words ring in their ears. Because uh, I think they just haven't so far. They just haven't. Um, they just haven't enough. Uh Many, many survivors have done a, a fantastic job up to this point of trying to share this information, but I don't think enough has been done. and I want to be a small part of adding to that pile. All right. Charlie Peters, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.